Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Stanford political scientist Dr. Catherine Stoner on the context of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Stoner is the Mossbacher Director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at Stanford, senior fellow at the Freeman Spoley Institute for International Studies, political scientist at Stanford, and senior fellow by courtesy at the Hoover Institution. Stoner is also the author of Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. This is part two of my interview with Dr. Stoner. You can hear part one at newsincontext.net. As this podcast airs, Putin has simultaneously agreed to pull back troops, but also begun regrouping around Kiev and stepping up assaults on other parts of Ukraine. In addition, Syria has begun sending fighters to Ukraine to support Russian troops. And the U.S. announced additional sanctions, this time on Russian tech companies and networks seeking to evade sanctions. Last week, we discussed why Putin may have invaded Ukraine and how he sees the world. I want to separate Putin and Russia. Because uh, Putin is not Russia, Russia is not Putin. But he certainly tries to fuse the two, been trying to alter uh, the balance of power in the post-Cold War international order for a while now. Um, and this is, in a sense, the apex uh, summit of their efforts. It is a world uh, almost of 19th century imperialism and, and areas or spheres of influence. And Ukraine is in this view of the world, uh, within Russia's historical sphere of influence, he is kind of gathering the lands as an ancient Tsar would, um, and reuniting Belarus and, and Ukraine, the Russian Empire, not so much the Soviet Union. The shame is that this policy towards Ukraine is, is going to hold back any further development, and Mr. Putin's autocracy more generally is held back where Russia could be. The well-educated society was globalizing. And so, you know, this is a shame for Russians. It's a tragedy for Ukrainians. In addition, Russia is the only other country besides the U.S. that could wage a global nuclear war, which is all the more concerning now that it's changed its national security doctrine, which used to say it would not fire a nuclear warhead unless attacked first. Now, Russia is willing to strike first in what they term a limited nuclear attack. So they could use the excuse that there's an attack on the homeland and that uh, it's existential. If there were, for example, an attack on Crimea, because they consider that peninsula part of Russia, not Ukraine. And uh, we've seen rhetoric. Um, from Mr. Putin and from others around him that, you know, you can have a limited nuclear war. Wow. So as an expert in this area, how, I, I wanted to ask how worried are you, but I don't want to put words in, but <laughs> how, uh, how are you contextualizing all of that? It's very worrisome because in the Soviet period during the Cold War, they were a predictable enemy in, in some respects. And we had mutually assured destruction and, you know, lines of communication. And if mutually assured destruction That is where, you know, if you fire a nuclear weapon at us, we'll fire one at you. Well, we haven't actually thought seriously in a long time that someone would use a nuclear weapon. And it wasn't thought of in this short range context, per se, that it would actually be lobbed at Ukraine. So bottom line, yeah, I'm worried about that. I 
find myself comparing this to the other big historical moment that Westerners are aware of, which is World War II and Hitler and walking into different countries. So then I get this sense of, well, it's got to be now or later. I mean, it's got to be at some point, right, that we're going to have to do a no-fly zone because I can't see Putin stopping here. There are lots of former Russian lands that I think he'd like to have. How much tragedy do we have to watch? How much damage do we have to see done? Uh, Or should we be waiting? Unfortunately, we Americans tend to be quite insular. Right. So unless it's hitting here some way, we tend to, you know, express our moral outrage, but that doesn't always turn into policy. So what would be the threshold? Well, there are not a lot of Russian per se lands, but there are potentially old Soviet republics that Russia has definitely been interested in. And in particular, I want to say Russia under Putin. Because uh, I think a different leader would, would pursue Russian national interests in a, in a different way. There's nothing that says that in order to bring Ukraine closer to Russia that you have to bomb it into oblivion. And there have been ways in which the Russian state and Russian commercial interests control the politics of other post-Soviet republics. So think about Armenia, Azerbaijan, Central Asia. Um, those are all much closer politically and they don't need to be invaded Um, For Russia to control them, there are lots of financial ties there. This led us to a discussion of NATO and whether Putin decided to attack over fears of Ukraine joining NATO. Dr. Stoner says no, Putin had other concerns. This isn't about NATO at all because Ukraine was not about to join NATO. It wasn't on the table, wasn't being discussed. It wasn't in 2014 when the Russians seized Crimea. This is about Ukraine wanting to be a democracy and seeing its future in Western Europe instead of with Russia. It's about democracy. Stoner says NATO's collaboration and cooperation throughout the Ukraine crisis seemed to have been a surprise to Putin, who expected a NATO that would be distracted and in disarray. I think we have done a great job of working with partners, and I think this was a surprise uh, on the Russian side. Um, their decision makers, I think, were hoping that NATO would not be so collaborative. Um, And, you know, the strength of NATO, the strength of the EU is only in their unanimity. And so far that's been maintained and that's huge and was definitely something Mr. Putin has worked over the last 15 years in particular to try to break apart. But we're hanging together, uh, which I think has been remarkable. Hopefully that will keep up. Is our response adequate? Mm -hmm. And watching the Ukrainians suffer this way is so hard. And I acknowledge, and I think it's important to acknowledge, that we're not seeing Yemen on TV every day, and we're not seeing other parts of the world on TV every day experiencing similar things. And I feel heartbroken for those people as well. And we've given a lot in aid, um, humanitarian aid, money, several different packages, billions of dollars. And of course, we're selling, you know, weapons uh, to the Ukrainians. We have been in, you might remember the second impeachment of Donald Trump, that quote unquote, perfect phone call that wasn't so perfect <laughs> was about that. He was withholding the javelins until Mr. Zelensky initiated an investigation into Hunter Biden. So folks might want to remember that's who it was and that's what it was about, uh, which makes it even more morally reprehensible now that we see what's happening to Ukrainians. My conversation this week with Dr. Stoner centers around how the actions of former President Trump and polarization in general contributed to this current moment, as well as the balancing act the U.S. and NATO are engaging in to help Ukraine without escalating the situation. We also talk about China and its possible role and response as well as the importance of valuing our own democracy by participating in it, especially voting. 
earlier you brought up the situation a couple of years ago in which uh, Trump had the not-so-perfect phone call and there was that effort to um, hold up that money that would have bought the javelins and, and, and helped the Ukrainians increase their defenses. Now, this is all part of a question of why now for me, and I wonder how much of an impact Trump's actions during the time he was in office emboldened Putin or, you know, I've heard from the conservative side, oh, no, we think Putin was afraid of Trump. <laughs> but I, I kind of think I, I, maybe he was a little emboldened. So, uh, you know, how much did that embolden Putin or how much was Putin able to set himself up for this? Or was this just going to happen anywhere on this timeline? How much did the did that dust up in Ukraine over the money hinder Ukraine? Uh, so I guess all the kind of questions wrapped into the why now question, sort of looking at that context. There are lots of possible reasons why now that are connected with with Putin and his circle, uh, which would include, you know, the, the sort of power ministries, the minister of defense, and then the heads of the um, internal security and external um, security or CIA, um, FBI equivalents, and the head of their security council, who has a, also has a sort of KGB background. So why now? Well, a couple of reasons. One, it's not Trump per se. Um, it is the division and polarization within American politics that manifested in Trump and uh, the election of Trump. Don't forget that the Russians did interfere in our elections. It, at a minimum, what we know for sure was the data dump, right, um, from WikiLeaks that they, they got from the Democratic National Committee. Putin even said this at the summit with Trump in Helsinki. Um, Putin even said, yes, I wanted him to win. So he didn't want Joe Biden to win. He didn't want him to win so actively that he tried to get Zelensky to investigate his son, right, uh, and cause a cause a scandal of some sort for Biden. So who is he afraid of? He wants Trump elected because Trump's a useful idiot. Who didn't he want elected? Didn't want Hillary Clinton elected. He wanted Trump. Why? Well, uh, Trump's terribly inexperienced and didn't know what he was talking about in the KGB. And that is Putin's background. They had this conception of the useful idiot, the person you can flatter um, and who will be helpful to you. And that's what you referenced earlier uh, with regard to Trump trying to get Russian sanctions lifted, stop U.S. javelin sales to Ukraine. Trump wanted the sanctions from 2014 removed. Well, Congress, thankfully, Republicans and Democrats took away the authority for him to, to do that, basically, right? So protected them. So, you know, what did this do? Did this deter Putin? No, it emboldened Putin, right? So here, look, the Americans, their, their politics are so fractionalized and polarized, they will elect this useful idiot. And, you know, whether or not the email dump actually changed some people's votes, we may never know, right? But they did it because they wanted him. And so, you know, anybody who's listening, when you're voting in the next election and you, and you hear that from, you know, some Republicans that, they feared Trump. Of course, they didn't fear Trump, right? They feared Biden. That's why he's trying to get the conspiracy right. against Biden um, to get Biden not elected and to get Trump elected. So I think that's an important point. Yes. So polarization and our decisions here in the U.S. with regard to voting and political issues. Are there any other reasons Putin thought this might be a good idea? Getting back to the issue of why now? Opportunity. Huge polarization in American politics, right? Trump is a manifestation of this. He, he was actually quite a weak president in terms of foreign policy. Look at his policies that were implicitly pro-Russian interests, right? 
uh, NATO. He felt the allies weren't paying up, wanted to pull the U.S. out of NATO, pulled the U.S. out of a bunch of other international right commitments. Great for Russia. That's great. Have a bad relationship with the European Union. Great. Russia has been trying to break up the European Union, Russia under Putin. For the last 15 years. Terrific. Supportive of Brexit. Excellent. So they were tickled pink. Whether you like Hillary Clinton or not, she had a great line when she spoke here at Stanford was, it will be Christmas in the Kremlin when Trump is elected. And it was. It was. Wow. So Putin just seemed to get emboldened by what happened in the U.S. under Trump. And he figured, what, that polarization and distraction was continuing under Biden? I think it's really the opportunity of the polarization in the U.S. and thinking, well, They'll never get it together in terms of a response. And so my opportunity is is now for that. And the same with the Europeans. The Chancellor of Germany now off scene and Germany having trouble in the fall um, putting together a new government. The government that they did put together, the new chancellor, traditionally many of those ministries are, are pro-Russia. And then, you know, watching the exit from Afghanistan and, you know, Russia had a full war chest, um, had about 650, you know, uh, billion dollars in in foreign reserves. Um, Its economy had started to grow again. And Mr. Putin had for the last two years been, you know, very anxious about COVID sitting largely isolated with just, you know, three or four guys who all think the same way. And at the apex of his own personal control over the Russian political system had been gradually whittling down civil society and any opposition or alternative voices in Russian politics, um, really since he returned to the presidency in 2012, he told us pretty clearly that he thought that, you know, Russia got a raw deal at the end of the Cold War, that Gorbachev messed up, and um, that when you view the world in terms of of blocks and uh, great powers that control other countries, it is beyond his mindset to think that Ukrainian people may actually want democracy and that they are not being manipulated by the West and the United States. And so the military had been reformed and was ready, lots of money, sitting alone, ruminating, ruminating, seeming chaos and polarization in the United States, probably won't respond much, don't really care about Ukraine anyway. Look at Trump. And then Europe divided and distracted too. And so why not now? Um, And then the final thing is there's a suspicion that he's ill, that Putin is ill. And so this is what he wants his legacy to be, bringing back together, gathering the lands of greater Russia. And Ukraine is integral to that. And the demonstration effect of an actually robust, messy democracy in Ukraine that was doing great wasn't perfect. No democracy is. It wasn't fully consolidated, but it was doing pretty well. So I think for all those reasons, um, that's why now. That explains why now. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with political scientist Dr. Catherine Stoner about Putin's version of the world order and NATO's response to his invasion of Ukraine so far. Poland question and a couple of things. One, I, I really do want to talk about what happened with the planes because that felt that felt like a good way to to help the Ukrainians in, in a meaningful way. The other piece is what happens if slash when a stray Russian missile falls 
on Poland. So I'm thinking about Poland in those two ways. And and one, I really am interested in what happened with those planes. Sure, no fly zone feels direct, but giving planes felt reasonable. These were uh, MiG jets that Poland had from the Soviet period and that Ukrainian pilots um, knew how to operate as opposed to, you know, our F-9s or whatever. So the thought was that if Ukrainian pilots came to Poland, picked up the planes and flew them in, um, then that's not NATO getting involved or a NATO country getting involved in this conflict. And it's giving the Ukrainians a weapon to to help fight Russian pilots in their planes over Ukraine. The problem was that, A, there was a possibility that that could be interpreted as NATO becoming directly involved. How do we get the planes there? So to me, this is a bit of hair splitting uh, because we are selling weapons and and artillery and all kinds of other things um, to Ukraine and billions of of dollars to keep the government going. But I think the real issue became the Polish decided to go public with a plan that didn't sit well with the Biden administration, which was to fly the planes instead of having Ukrainian pilots fly from Poland and have Poland be a sitting duck there, because it's obviously closer geographically to Russia, was to have the planes flown from Poland to uh, one of our bases in Germany, U.S. military base, and then have U.S. pilots uh-huh. <laughs> fly from those bases <laughs> into it. Ukraine. And and it was at that point the Americans were saying, no, 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 we're not going to do that, nor are we going to have Ukrainian pilots come here and fly them in because that's a little too risky in terms of overt involvement. Again, I think that's hair splitting. I, I, I think this could have been done either from Poland or, or frankly from Germany with Ukrainian pilots and Ukrainians flying over the Polish airspace. But the worry was that Poland, a NATO country, you know, Germany, a NATO country helping in this way and the U.S. and it's too direct and, the, and the, that'll be a provocation and the Russians will start bombing Poland and the next thing you know in World War III. There's also a question, and, and this is the point the Biden administration makes, is, um, well, would it have helped that much? Um, they have anti-aircraft artillery and missiles that we've sold to them, and uh, that you know the Turks have given them these drones. And, and so, in fact, they can fight back um, in the sky, and they don't, we don't need this risky maneuver. I think that's very arguable, but that's their perspective. So then it gets to Poland is sitting there um, and there are, you know, uh, military assets of the Ukrainian military in Western Ukraine, reasonably close within a couple hundred miles of um, the Polish border, to be sure, maybe even closer than that. And so Russia did actually send a hypersonic missile, which is not nuclear. It's conventionally tipped, but it, the thing with hypersonic missiles is very destructive because it moves more than five times the, the speed of sound, Mach 5. And that was the first time a hypersonic missile was used in combat. They did send that into uh, a military base outside the Ivanova area, which is not too, too far from the Polish border. Um, now, that's a very highly uh, controllable, targeted missile. So the, the likelihood of that going 100, 200, 300 kilometers off course is is very, very low. Um, They can hit pretty accurately from far away. There are other weapons, though, that that could accidentally 
definitely uh, go go across the border. I think the Russians are probably going to try to be pretty careful not to do that because NATO obviously has this Article 5 commitment um, to all of its members, which is an attack on one is an attack on all. It has been honored. It was honored most recently, you know, in Afghanistan when, you know, we were attacked in 9-11 and, and NATO became involved as a result of that. So I think Russia is going to be careful not to do that, but it's not impossible that it could happen. There would have to be a very careful and calibrated response as to whether or not that was an actual attack and it invokes Article 5. And if it does, then, you know, that's why Russia has not taken more action against the, the Baltic countries uh, in the way that it's doing, doing so against Ukraine. But you can now see why Ukraine was interested in joining NATO, right? They might not be in this situation. Clearly, clearly. So then my last sort of question area involves China, because China China is watching closely. Uh, China wants Taiwan. Yeah. What is your estimation or what is your assessment of of China's perspective in all of this? And their hopes and dreams and uh, and how they are or might be orienting themselves to this conflict. So I have a section in my book, actually, on, uh, you know, where else is Russia sort of powerful or influential? And in China, there is this kind of um, uh, reciprocal effect. Um, and so in the last uh, eight to 10 years, Sino-Russian relations have become very warm indeed, um, and there's a certain interdependence. Um, a lot of people think it's just one way that Russia needs China, but actually China needs some things from Russia that it can't get that easily from other countries. And one of those things is, again, carbon resources. And that's that's oil, yes, which you can get from other places. And, and China can and certainly does buy more oil actually from, from the Middle East than it does from Russia. But it buys a lot from Russia. And Russia's right there. It's easy to get and it's a reliable supplier. Also buys natural gas, uh, which is a little harder to move around, especially because it comes out of the ground as a as a gas, right? And then it has to be li- well, liquefied. And if you're importing liquefied natural gas, which moves quickly, and then it gets turned back into a gas. And and then the third thing is coal, um, which China is kind of running low on, and Russia has a lot of too. Um, and then the other thing is uranium and the ability to build uh, nuclear power plants and then weapons. Russia also sells weapons. So there is a question of what China may do. Do you think they'll jump in to help Russia like Syria is doing? Now, we may see the Russian military on the ground right now. I think it's a little overblown that they're not doing that well. They're not doing as well as we'd expected. And the Ukrainians are doing far better, I think, than everyone expected. But they're fighting for their lives. And the Russians seem a little confused about why they're there. Some of the Russian soldiers, anyway, confused and surprised that they're there. But Russians actually make good Weapons. We make good weapons here in the U.S. too. We sell more of them than than anybody else in the world. But Russia's number two, and one of their big customers is is China. India is another one, by the way. So there's some interdependence, and China's got a lot of money, a big economy, um, and you know Russia needs the investment, and so there's a way around sanctions to be sure. But you know China also has strong trade relations with the U.S. Um, U.S. owes a lot of money to China. So there's some interdependence in the Chinese-Russian relationship. It's not all one way. That's also true with China and the U.S. is this, there's a little bit of interdependence. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Very good point. So China moves a little differently in the international system than, than Russia and doesn't necessarily have the same kind of sphere of influence issues that Russia does. Um, 
And I would say Taiwan's a bit of a different case because remember, we have a one China policy. We sometimes forget what that means exactly, but it is not recognizing Taiwan as a, as a sovereign or independent country, but rather as part of, of China. And Ukraine is, is not part of Russia. It was not a province of Russia except in the 18th century, right? <laughs> and maybe early 19th century, but it's not a province of, of Russia. We don't have a policy that says it is, right? This is a sovereign and independent country. Taiwan it's a difficult case in a sense because our official policy is not to recognize it as an independent country. However, we don't want China basically going in there and turning it into, you know, a, a part of communist China. It does want to be independent. One scenario one of my colleagues here talks about a lot is, well, now would be a great time for China to just go seize Taiwan because we're so distracted. But I'm not sure, I'm not sure that is the case. I mean, I think they're pretty clear that 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 would put China and Chinese trade routes in, into a lot of danger. Um, and they may not succeed if we decided to get more involved there because we still have better weapons than they do, um, although they're getting better ones. The other thing is, though, China and Russia are both members of the UN Security Council, and they have tended to vote in lockstep in the last 10 or so years. Um, and China has not condemned what Russia has done um, but it has sent aid to Ukraine, humanitarian aid, and Belt and Road had investments in Ukraine, and they, the Chinese do through Belt, their Belt and Road policy, um, and they do in Eastern Europe too. So I, I don't think you're going to see a strong statement in, in Russia's favor, but I don't think you're going to see a strong condemnation either. That's why we keep hearing them say things like we respect sovereignty because they they want their sovereignty respected <laughs> over Taiwan. Do you think that they're going to make a move on Taiwan at this point? I don't think so. I, I think President Xi has uh, uh, domestic issues that, that are more important uh, to him at the moment uh, than, than that. So what would you like people in the U.S. to know? What would you like the American people to r- remember as we are moving through this? Uh, situation. I think it's important to sort of shake Americans out of their complacency here that that this is happening in a little country in Europe that's far away and doesn't affect me. This isn't a little country in Europe. Ukraine is actually geographically the largest country in Europe, unless you count Russia uh, as as being in Europe, and some people do. So you know, bigger than France, uh, it's about the size of Texas. Forty four million people. Uh, so that's you know more than Canada. So this is a pretty big country. Um, And it's actually one that is pretty important to food supply in different parts of the world as well, especially through the Middle East, a big grain exporter. Um, And if you think this isn't going to affect you, it is. When you're paying more at the gas pump right now, that's a direct effect um, of this conflict because global oil prices are going up as a result of Russia's position in global oil markets. So to those of us who feel helpless, like we can't affect global markets, we can't stop Russia from invading, what can we here in the U.S. do? I think this is an opportunity um, for the United States, for, for young Americans who could be listening to this. Democracy matters. Um, what this conflict is about is, is about Ukraine's democracy. Um, it's about self-determination. Um, and I think we tend to and have come to tend to undervalue it and become very cynical and uh, believe our echo chambers. And I just want to urge people to get different sources of information um, Mr. Putin is, he is, he's not a good guy, um, as Tucker Carlson may be telling you. 
it's not a reasonable position or approach to foreign policy to grab a different country um, just because you want it. That's not how we conduct foreign policy. And it's not right to take the agency of people who want to live differently away by force. And that's what's happening uh, in this situation. And, and it's as simple and yet as complicated as, as that. So value what you have, get involved in politics, defend your democracy, get out and vote. People are literally dying because they did it or because they want that right um, to do it. And don't let anyone stop you from having the right to do it and staying well-informed. Diversify your sources of information. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Katherine Stoner, Mossbacher Director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law, Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, Political Scientist at Stanford, and Senior Fellow by Courtesy at the Hoover Institution. Stoner is also the author of Russia Resurrected, its power and purpose in a new global order. This has been part two of my interview with Dr. Stoner. You can hear part one at newsincontext.net. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing News in Context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.